Chapter 3, Gautama. In the town of Savathi, every child knew the name of the illustrious Buddha, and every house was ready to fill the alm bowls of Gautama's silently begging disciples. Near the town was Gautama's favorite abode, the Jetavana Grove, which the rich merchant Adathapindika, a great devotee of the illustrious one, had presented to him and his followers. The two young ascetics, in their search for Gautama's abode, had been referred to this district by tales and answers to their questions. And on their arrival in Savathi, food was offered to them immediately at the first house in front of whose door they stood silently begging. They partook of food, and Siddhartha asked the lady who handed him the food, Good lady, we should very much like to know where the Buddha, the illustrious one, dwells, for we are two samanas from the forest, and have come to see the perfect one and hear his teachings from his own lips. The woman said, You have come to the right place, O samanas from the forest. The illustrious one sojourns in Jetavana, the garden of Anathapindika. You may spend the night there, pilgrims, for there is enough room for the numerous people who flock here to hear the teachings from his lips. Then Govinda rejoiced and happily said, Ah, then we have reached our goal and our journey is at end. But tell us, mother of pilgrims, do you know the Buddha? Have you seen him with your own eyes? The woman said, I have seen the illustrious one many times. On many a day I have seen him walk through the streets silently in a yellow cloak and silently hold out his alms bowl at the house doors and return with his filled bowl. Govinda listened enchanted and wanted to ask many more questions and hear much more, but Siddhartha reminded him that it was time to go. They expressed their thanks and departed. It was hardly necessary to inquire the way, for quite a number of pilgrims and monks from Gautama's followers were on the way to Jetavana. When they arrived there at night, there were continual new arrivals. There was a stir of voices from them, requesting and obtaining shelter. The two Samanas, who were used to life in the forest, quickly and quietly found shelter and stayed there till morning. At sunrise, they were astounded to see the large number of believers and curious people who had spent the night there. Monks in yellow robes wandered along all the paths of the magnificent grove. Here and there they sat under the trees, lost in meditation or engaged in spirited talk. The shady gardens were like a town, swarming with bees. Most of the monks departed with their alms bowls in order to obtain food for their midday meal, the only one of the day. Even the Buddha himself went begging in the morning. Siddhartha saw him and recognized him immediately, as if pointed out to him by a god. He saw him bearing an alms bowl, quietly leaving the place, an unassuming man in a yellow cowl. Look, said Siddhartha softly to Govinda, there is the Buddha. Govinda looked attentively at the monk in the yellow cowl, who would not be distinguished in any way from the hundreds of other monks. And yet Govinda soon recognized him. Yes, it is he. And they followed him and watched him. The Buddha went quietly on his way, lost in thought. His peaceful countenance was neither happy nor sad. He seemed to be smiling gently inward. With a secret smile, not unlike that of a healthy child, he walked along peacefully, quietly. He wore his gown and walked along exactly like the other monks, but his face and his step, his peaceful downward glance, his peaceful downward hanging hand, and every finger of his hand spoke of peace, spoke of completeness, sought nothing, imitated nothing, reflected a continuous quiet and unfading light, an invulnerable peace. And so Gautama wandered into the town to obtain alms, and the two Samanas recognized him only by his complete peacefulness of demeanor, by the stillness of his form in which there was no seeking, no will, no counterfeit, no effort, only light and peace. Today we'll hear the teaching from his own lips, said Govinda. Siddhartha did not reply. He was not very curious about the teachings. He did not think they would teach him anything new. He, as well as Govinda, had heard the substance of the Buddha's teachings, if only from the second and third hand reports. 
but he looked attentively at Gautama's head, at his shoulders, at his feet, as his still, downward-hanging hand, and it seemed to him that in every joint of every finger of his hand there was knowledge. They spoke, breathed, radiated truth. This man, this Buddha, was truly a holy man to his fingertips. Never had Siddhartha esteemed a man so much, never had he loved a man so much. They both followed the Buddha into the town and returned in silence. They themselves intended to abstain from food that day. They saw Gautama return, saw him take his meal within the circle of his disciples. What he ate would not have satisfied a bird, and saw him withdraw to the shade of the mango tree. In the evening, however, when the heat abated and everyone in the camp was alert and gathered together, they heard the Buddha preach. They heard his voice, and this also was perfect, quiet, and full of peace. Gautama talked about suffering, the origin of suffering, the way to release from suffering. Life was pain, the world was full of suffering, but the path to the release from suffering had been found. There was salvation for those who went the way of the Buddha. The illustrious one spoke in a soft but firm voice, taught the four main points, taught the eightfold path. Patiently he covered the usual method of teaching with examples and repetition. Clearly and quietly, his voice was carried to his listeners like a light, like a star in the heavens. When the Buddha had finished, it was already night. Many pilgrims came forward and asked to be accepted into the community, and the Buddha accepted them and said, You have listened well to the teachings. Join us then and walk in bliss. Put an end to suffering. Govinda the Shy One also stepped forward and said, I also wish to pay my allegiance to the illustrious one and his teachings. He asked to be taken into the community and was accepted. As soon as the Buddha had withdrawn from the night, Govinda turned to Siddhartha and said eagerly, Siddhartha, it is not for me to reproach you. We have both listened to the illustrious one. We have both heard his teachings. Govinda has listened to my teachings and has accepted them. But you, my dear friend, will you also not tread the path of salvation? Will you delay? Will you still wait? When he heard Govinda's words, Siddhartha awakened as if from sleep. He looked at Govinda's face for a long time. Then he spoke softly, and there was no mockery in his voice. Govinda, my friend, you have taken the step. You have chosen your path. You have always been my friend, Govinda. You have always gone a step behind me. Often I have thought, will Govinda ever take a step without me, from his own conviction? Now you are a man and have chosen your own path. May you go along it to the end, my friend. May you find salvation. Govinda, who did not fully understand, repeated his question impatiently. Speak, my dear friend. Say that you also cannot do other than swear allegiance to the Buddha. Siddhartha placed his hand on Govinda's shoulder. You have heard my blessing, Govinda. I repeat it. May you travel this path to the end. May you find salvation. In that moment, Govinda realized that his friend was leaving him, and he began to weep. Siddhartha, he cried. Siddhartha spoke kindly to him. Do not forget, Govinda, that you do not belong to the Buddha's holy men. You have renowned renounced home and parents. You have renounced origin and property. You have renounced your own will. You have renounced friendship. That is what the teachings preach. That is the will of the illustrious one. That is what you wish for yourself. Tomorrow, Govinda, I will leave you. <coughs> for a long time, the friends wandered through the woods. They lay down for a long time, but could not sleep. Govinda pressed his friend again and again to tell him why he would not follow the Buddha's teaching, what flaw he found in them. But each time, Siddhartha waved him off. Be at peace, Govinda. The illustrious one's teachings are very good. How could I find a flaw in them? Early in the morning, one of the Buddha's followers, one of his oldest monks, went through the garden and called to him all the new people who had sworn their allegiance to the teachings. 
in order to place upon them the yellow robe and instruct them in the first teachings and duties of their order. Thereupon Govinda tore himself away, embraced the friend of his youth, and drew on the monk's robe. Siddhartha wandered through the deep grove and thought. There he met Gautama, the illustrious one, and as he greeted him respectfully, and the Buddha's expression was so full of goodness and peace, the young man plucked up courage and asked the illustrious one's permission to speak to him. Silently, the illustrious one nodded with permission. Siddhartha said, Yesterday, O illustrious one, I had the pleasure of hearing your wonderful teachings. I came from afar with my friend to hear you, and now my friend will remain with you. He has sworn allegiance to you. I, however, am continuing my pilgrimage anew. As you wish, said the illustrious one politely. My talk is perhaps too bold, continued Siddhartha, but I do not wish to leave the illustrious one without sincerely communicating to him my thoughts. Will the illustrious one hear me a little longer? Silently, the Buddha nodded his consent. Siddhartha said, O oh, illustrious one, in one thing above all I have admired your teachings. Everything is completely clear and proved. You show the world as a complete unbroken chain, an eternal chain linked together by cause and effect. Never has it been presented so clearly. Never has it been so irrefutably demonstrated. Surely every Brahmin's heart must beat more quickly when through your teachings he looks at the world, completely coherent, without a loophole, clear as crystal, not dependent on chance, not dependent on the gods. Whether it is good or evil, whether life in itself is pain or pleasure, whether it is uncertain, that it may perhaps be this not be important, but the unity of the world, the coherence of all things, the embracing of the big and small from the same stream, from the same law of cause, of becoming and dying, this shines clearly from your exalted teachings, O perfect one. But according to your teachings, this unity and logical sequence of all things is broken in one place. Through a small gap, there streams into the world of unity something strange, something new. Something that was not there before that cannot be demonstrated and proved. That is your doctrine of rising above the world, of salvation. With this small gap through this small break, however, the eternal and single world law breaks down again. Forgive me, I raise this objection. Gautama had listened quietly, motionless, and now the perfect one spoke in his kind, polite, and clear voice. You have listened well to the teachings, O Brahmin's son, and it is a credit to you that you have thought so deeply about them. You have found a flaw. Think well about it again. Let me warn you, you who are thirsty for knowledge, against the thicket of opinions and the conflict of words. Opinions mean nothing. They may be beautiful or ugly, clever or foolish. Anyone can embrace or reject them. The teachings, which you have heard, however, is not my opinion, and its goal is not to explain the world to those who are thirsty for knowledge. Its goal is quite different. Its goal is salvation from suffering. That is what Gautama teaches, nothing else. Do not be angry with me, O illustrious one, said the young man. I have not spoken to you thus to quarrel with you about words. You are right when you say that opinions mean little. But may I say one more thing? I did not doubt you for a moment. Not for one moment did I doubt that you were the Buddha, that you have reached the highest goal which so many thousands of Brahmins and Brahmin sons are striving to reach. You have done so by your own seeking, in your own way, through thought, through meditation, through knowledge, through enlightenment. You have learned nothing through teachings. And so I think, O oh, illustrious one, that nobody finds salvation through teachings. To nobody, O oh, illustrious one, can you communicate in words and teachings what happened to you in the hour of your enlightenment. The teachings of the enlightened Buddha embrace much. They teach much how to live righteously, how to avoid evil. But there is one thing that this clear, worthy instruction does not contain. It does not contain the secret of what the illustrious one himself experienced. He alone among hundreds of thousands. That is what I thought and realized when I heard your teachings. That is why I am going on my own way. Not to seek another and better doctrine, for I know there is none, but to leave all doctrines and all teachers and to re reach my goal alone. 
or die. But I will often remember this day, O illustrious one, and this hour when my eyes beheld a holy man. The Buddha's eyes were lowered. His unfathomable face expressed complete equanimity. I hope you are not mistaken in your reasoning, said the illustrious one slowly. May you reach your goal, but tell me, have you seen my gatherings of holy men, my many brothers who have sworn allegiance to the teachings? Do you think, O Samana, from afar, that it would be better for all those to relinquish the teachings and to return to the life of the world and desires? That thought never occurred to me, cried Siddhartha. May they all follow the teachings. May they all reach their goal. It is not for me to judge another life. I must judge for myself. I must choose and reject. We Samanas seek release from the self, O illustrious one. If I were one of your followers, I fear that it would only be on the surface, that I would deceive myself, that I was at peace and had attained salvation, while in truth the self would continue to live and grow, for it would have been transformed into your teachings, into my allegiance and love for you, and for the community of the monks. Half smiling with imperturbable brightness and friendliness, the Buddha looked steadily at the stranger and dismissed him with a hardly visible gesture. You are clever, O Samana, said the illustrious one. You know how to speak cleverly, my friend. Be on your guard against too much cleverness. The Buddha walked away, and his look and half-smile remained imprinted on Siddhartha's memory forever. I've never seen a man look and smile, sit and walk like that, he thought. I also would like to look and smile, sit and walk like that. So free, so worthy, so restrained, so candid, so childlike and mysterious. A man only looks and walks like that when he has conquered his self. I also will conquer myself. I have seen one man, one man only, thought Siddhartha, before whom I must lower my eyes. I will never lower my eyes before any other man. No other teachings will attract me since this man's teachings have not done so. The Buddha has robbed me, thought Siddhartha. He has robbed me, yet he has given me something of greater value. He has robbed me of my friend, who believed in me, and who now believes in him. He was my shadow, and he is now Gautama's shadow. But he has given to me Siddhartha, myself. Chapter 4 Awakening As Siddhartha left the grove in which the Buddha, the Perfect One, remained, in which Govinda remained, he felt that he had left his former life behind him in the grove. As he slowly went on his way, his head was full of his, this thought. He reflected deeply until this feeling completely overwhelmed him, and he reached a point where he recognized causes. For to recognize causes, it seemed to him, is to think. And through thought alone, feelings become knowledge and are not lost but become real and begin to mature. Siddhartha reflected deeply as he went on his way. He realized that he was no longer a youth. He was now a man. He realized that something had left him, like the old skin that a snake sheds. Something was no longer in him, something that had accompanied him right through to his youth and was part of him. This was a desire to have teachers and to listen to their teachings. He had left the last teacher he had met, even then, the greatest and wisest teacher, the holiest, the Buddha. He had to leave him. He could not accept his teachings. Slowly, the thinker went on his way and asked himself, What is it you wanted to learn from teachings and teachers? And although they taught you much, what was it they could not teach you? And he thought, It was the self, the character and nature of which I wished to learn. I wanted to rid myself of the self, to conquer it, but I could not conquer it. I could only deceive it, could only fly from it, could only hide from it. Truly, nothing in the world was occupied my thoughts as much as the self this riddle that I live that I am one and am separated and different from everybody else that I am Siddhartha and about nothing in the world do I know less than myself about Siddhartha the thinker slowly going on his way suddenly stood still gripped by this thought and another thought immediately arose from this one it was 
The reason why I do not know anything about myself, the reason why Siddhartha has remained alien and unknown to myself is due to one thing, to one single thing. I was afraid of myself. I was fleeing from myself. I was seeking Brahman, Atman. I wish to destroy myself, to get away from myself in order to find in the unknown innermost, the nucleus of all things, Atman, life, the divine, the absolute. But by doing so, I lost myself on the way. Siddhartha looked up and, and around him. A smile crept over his face and a strong feeling of awakening from a long dream spread right through his being. Immediately he walked on again, quickly like a man who knows what he has to do. Yes, he thought, breathing deeply. I will no longer try to escape from Siddhartha. I will no longer devote my thoughts to Atman and the sorrows of the world. I will no longer mutilate and destroy myself in order to find a secret beyond the ruins. I will no longer study Yoga Veda, Aratha Veda, or asceticism or any other teachings. I will learn from myself. Be my own pupil. I will learn from myself the secret of Siddhartha. He looked around him as if seeing the world for the first time. The world was beautiful, strange, and mysterious. Here was blue, here was yellow, here was green, sky and river, woods and mountains, all beautiful, all mysterious and enchanting. And in the midst of it, he, Siddhartha, the awakened one, on the way to himself, all this, all this yellow and blue river and wood passed for the first time across Siddhartha's eyes. It was no longer the magic of Mara. It was no more the veil of Maya. It was no longer meaningless in the chance diversities of the appearances of the world despised by deep-thinking Brahmins who scorned diversity, who sought unity. River was river, and if the one and divine in Siddhartha secretly lived in blue and river, it was just the divine art and intention that if there should be yellow and blue their sky and wood and here Siddhartha meaning and reality were not hidden somewhere between behind things they were in them in all of them how deaf and stupid I have been he thought walking on quickly when anyone reads anything which he wishes to study he does not despise the letters and punctuation marks and call them illusion chance and worthless shells but he reads them he studies them and loves them letter by letter but I who wished to read the book of the world and the book of my own nature did presume to despise the letters and signs. I called the world of appearances illusion. I called my eyes and tongue chance. Now it is over. I have awakened. I have indeed awakened and have only been born today. But as these thoughts passed through Siddhartha's mind, he suddenly stood still as if a snake lay in his path. Then suddenly this also was clear to him. He, who was in fact like one who had awakened or was newly born, must begin his life completely afresh. When he left the Jatavana grove that morning, the grove of the illustrious one, already awakened, already on the way to himself, it was his intention and it seemed the natural course for him year after years of his asceticism to return to his home and his father. Now, however, in that moment, that he, as he stood still as if a snake lay in his path, this thought also came to him. I'm no longer what I was. I'm no longer an ascetic, no longer a priest, no longer a Brahmin. What then shall I do at home with my father? Study, offer sacrifices, practice meditation? All this is over for me now. Siddhartha stood still and for a moment an icy chill stole over him. He shivered inwardly like a small animal, like a bird or hare when he realized how alone he was. He had been homeless for years and had not felt like this. Now he did feel it. Previously when in deepest meditation, he was still his father's son. He was a Brahmin of high standing, a religious man. Now he was only Siddhartha, the awakened, otherwise nothing else. He breathed in deeply and for a moment he shuddered. Nobody was so alone as he. He was no nobleman belonging to an aristocracy. 
no artisan belonging to any guild and finding refuge in it, sharing its life and language. He was no Brahmin sharing the life of the Brahmins, no ascetic belonging to the Samanas. Even the most secluded hermit in the woods was not one and alone. He also belonged to a class of people. Govinda had become a monk and thousands of monks were his brothers, wore the same gown, shared his beliefs, and spoke his language. But he, Siddhartha, where did he belong? Whose life would he share? Whose language would he speak? At that moment when the world around him melted away, when he stood alone like a star in the heavens, he was overwhelmed by a feeling of icy despair. But he was more firmly himself than ever. That was the last shudder of his awakening, the last pains of birth. Immediately he moved on again and began to walk quickly and impatiently, no longer homewards, no longer to his father, no longer looking backwards.